and welcome to the Energy Strong podcast presented by SPL. I'm Patrick Schauer, joined today by the director of ESG for SPL, Andrew Parker. How's it going, Andrew? Doing good, Patrick. Also joining us is the CEO of Artemis Energy, Kat Galloway. Kat, how are you today? I'm so busy. Um, for, for any of our listeners who are in any of the environmental worlds in their companies, now is a very busy time. First quarter is crazy. Everyone is working on greenhouse gas emissions, emissions inventories. So I just want to send a shout out to all of the environmental staff. We love you. We're giving you a hug. And hopefully you can make it through first quarter. Fantastic. Yep. Everyone, thank you for all your hard work and making sure those ESG reports go out on time and with all the right information. So I'm really excited to talk to Mike Umbro today, guys. Have you seen any of his stuff on LinkedIn recently? Can't say that I have, honestly, but unfortunately, I'm not all that active on LinkedIn. So so Mike is, I feel like a lone ranger sometimes with, with California. He, he's been so active and such a great advocate for the industry in California. I think it's it's an industry that we forget, right? A lot of the time when you're part of the oil and gas industry, you think North Dakota, you think Texas, you think the Gulf, right? How often do you think of California for for the political and the environmental climate, regu- you know, the regulations that, that uh, they have over there? They have a vibrant oil and gas community and they, they have fields and they produce, or I think depending on how you look at it, top five, top six oil producer in the United States. And uh, he's out there fighting the good fight for the industry in California. And man, I can't wait to talk to him about some of his experiences. Well, I can't wait to find out why you would even want to produce um, in California. So that'll be one of my questions for sure. A question that I can't wait to hear the answer to. We will be right back to the Energy Strong Podcast, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, SPL. They offer end-to-end testing, measurement, and reporting solutions across the entire hydrocarbon value chain through cutting-edge technology, meticulous processes, and highly qualified personnel. SPL offers insights you can trust and act on. Check them out online at spl-inc.com. That's spl-inc.com. And now... Back to the show. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Mike Umbro. Mike, if you haven't seen any of his content on LinkedIn, he's uh, an advocate of the oil and gas industry, and uh, he hails from the state of California. So born and raised San Diegan. Is that how you is that how you say a San Diegan? Is that what you guys call yourself? It sounds wrong. Yep. No, San Diegan. Yeah, born and raised. There there aren't as many of us these days, but. <laughs> So Mike, uh, Mike works for uh, Fieldview Capital, and they currently uh, are an energy consulting firm that uh, focuses on upstream oil and gas production and services. And right now, Mike, you guys are developing a heavy oil field in Kern County, California, which is Bakersfield, right? Yeah, we're about a, an hour's drive west of Bakersfield in Kern County. Uh, so the west side, some of the notable fields out there, you know, South Bell Ridge, North Bell Ridge, Simric, Midway Sunset. We're north of that uh, area on the west side of Kern County. Awesome. So the first question I wanted to ask, I saw, I saw you post on Twitter the other day. I guess you were filling up probably your, your vehicle. 111 bucks for 23 uh, gallons of gas. So what is the price of a gallon of gas in the San Diego area right now? 
So, you know, if you're not just going to kill yourself driving around looking for pricing, you're, you're in the 450 to 460 a gallon range um, and susceptible to, you know, 499 and above <laughs> if, you, if you're really running on fumes. But uh, yeah, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal, the, the, the price increase. And I, I think it's only going higher. And um, it's very unfortunate for, for folks living in California. So... Mike, California kind of set the stage for listeners. California, we know fuel prices are high. We know energy prices are high. But what a lot of people don't realize is California's, depending on what list you're looking at, the number five or number six producer of oil in the United States, right? Right. California right. actually does produce quite a bit of oil, but mm -hmm. it also imports quite a bit of oil. So maybe set the stage for people and just kind of share some background statistics on uh, California's oil and gas energy profile. Sure. Yeah. You know, high level, just looking at our demand over, call it a 40-year time horizon, we are consistently consuming over 600 million barrels of oil a year uh, as a state. Uh, we consume the most gasoline, the most jet fuel out of any of the states. Uh, and the, the only year to two years that have dropped below that level of demand have been recently with COVID. And of course, we've had some of the most extreme lockdowns, especially early in the pandemic. So, uh, you know, we always learn Econ 101, you know, demand is inelastic. Now, of course, population has grown in California over that time. So you have more people coming. Uh, but bottom line, demand has stayed right at that 600 million barrels a year figure. Uh, back in 85, 90% of that demand was met between California production and Alaskan production. Uh, and just about, you know, 5, 10% was brought in from foreign sources. Now you've got the same demand, but you see 60 to 70% of that crude coming from foreign sources and, you know, roughly 40% of that crude coming from California and Alaska. So um, with the uh, you know, environmental progress, quote unquote, that California has pursued under, you know, acts like the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, um, and AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. Uh, these, you know, landmark pieces of legislation are, are really designed to, uh, you know, better the environment, but extreme leakage is occurring that is, you know, it's kind of, you know, whether you say not in my backyard for the nimbyism or, um, you know, out of sight, out of mind, which is, you know, for energy and the supply chain, what's going on right now. That's, that's high level kind of sets a table for what we're talking about in California. Yeah. The blatant, this is a blatant fact of 70%, almost about 70% of the oil in California is imported is absolutely crazy to me. Right. And so I was, mm -hmm. I was doing some research and, you know, so energy.ca.gov, foreign sources mm -hmm. of marine crude oil imports to California in 2020. So 25% of that comes from Ecuador. About 45% right. of that combined comes from Saudi and Iraq. And then Colombia, Mexico, and, and so on. So, right. and, and I've seen you post some content about, in particular, the crude coming from Ecuador. Uh, so maybe mm -hmm. dive into uh, some of that and, and tell, tell the listeners um, 
why getting sure. oil from Ecuador is is not very environmentally friendly. And and and, and, right. and let me just I'm sorry. Just just to think yeah. about this here, how can that possibly be cleaner than US oil? We have so many right. environmental regulations that we require how production should be running, what kind of emission controls. We have state regulatory boards. We have the EPA. I don't understand how it's possible for Ecuador, Venezuela, or Saudi to produce oil cleaner than anything that we do here in the United States. That's my personal opinion, but I'm definitely interested in, in, in what you've got to say. No, I think that's a fact. I think we can we can kind of stamp that one a fact and not even an opinion, but um, for sure. And I was thinking about, you know, before we spoke today, I was thinking about this, you know, really... California producers shouldn't even need an ESG program because if you look at CEQA and the the mandate and 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 what we have ahead of us and it's great it's fantastic to have that high bar for environmental standards but if you're meeting that as a California operator you know it it's it should be high marks to us and it should be a focus on maximizing the production uh, from an area of the world and an area in the United States that is taking a leadership role on, you know, environmental regulation. Um, but then if, you know, what got me posting things on LinkedIn and I guess what resonates with, with people that see that content is, um, you know, sources and uses. And, I, and that's a term that I use for my finance side. You know, if you're raising money, you know, how much money are you raising? Where's it coming from? Debt, equity, show me the breakdown. And, if we apply that to foreign sources of crude oil, it's it's not even close. If you look at Ecuador, um, you know they have NGOs working down there just to advocate for the indigenous people. These are these are some of the these are some of the of the people that have have purposely avoided human contact over the millennia to 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 preserve their way of life in the Amazon rainforest. And Ecuador is literally partnering with China to produce oil. They're 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 essentially debt ridden with Chinese debt on these these infrastructure belt and road type projects over the last fifteen years. So they owe this oil to China, and and a good amount of this oil comes either brokered through China to California or from Ecuador, you know Petro Ecuador straight to California. However that flows, but you've got. Um, tremendous amount of flaring that occurs in the Yasuni National Park, one of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world. You have uh, oil spills that occur that are, you know, untracked and really, um, you know, unresolved years later. They haven't been cleaned up. You've got long-standing litigation between majors like Texaco and Chevron over past environmental spills in the '80s that are still unresolved and showing up in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it's really just, it's a lack of an audit trail and, and it, it, the information exists, but unless, you know, one of us is willing to go down to Ecuador and try to report on this and risk our lives trying to go down there and, and, and shed light on this, it's just, it's just all we can do is kind of post to social media. It's really sad because our, our political leaders, specifically Governor Newsom has no interest in discussing, uh, you know, crude via tanker, no matter where it's coming in. And, and we could go down the list. I could, we could talk about, you know, why each of those sources, Iraq, Colombia, Saudi, and Ecuador are, you know, bad places to be purchasing from, but they all have their own issues that are far greater than, than what you're going to get in a California barrel. 
Yeah. So Mike, you talked about out of sight, out of mind, or not in my backyard. Is that really just the attitude of anyone in California? Or I guess we could apply that to other states like Colorado as well and say, well, we've put these regulations in place and it's lowering the the oil production here. Therefore, we've accomplished our goal of reducing oil. And and, and people don't take that next step as to re- where does that replacement barrel come from? Is there just not an awareness among the public? Or what, what are you finding as you're trying to bring this message out um, yeah. as what the hurdles yeah. are for people's understanding? Absolutely. It's an important point. And yet, and, and yes, to answer the first question, that the political objective is to, quote unquote, phase out oil production in California. So as they have success minimizing, and of course, if you look at a, a decline curve of production in California, you'll see it's just kind of slowly uh, you know, tapering off over the last 10, 20 years. And so the political mindset is, okay, we can just minimize that number. Look, it's only, you know, now it's only 300 million barrels a year produced in California. Now it's only 200 million barrels. It's nothing. Let's just stamp it out. We need to move off of fossil fuels. But they completely ignore the other side of the coin, which is where is it coming from? If we know demand is still 600 million barrels a year, where is that coming from? And that's exactly, it's totally ignored. So you see um, you see some state senators down um, in the coastal regions by the ports that are saying, well, you know, now we had this, this pipeline leak that was the result of a ship anchor uh, due to the supply chain crisis. And rather than say, okay, the, the ports are overrun, they, their mantra is, well, we need to phase out offshore oil production in California because it's dangerous and it's not worth the risk being there. But they largely ignore the fact that seven of the 10 largest oil spills in U.S. waters are the result of tanker accidents, not issues with blowouts or platforms. So the the data is always misrepresented to the public by the politicians. And, you know, who's going to other than folks like us in the industry, no one's no one's researching this stuff. No one (laughs) no one's no one's, you know, investigating these kind of issues. There's also, I think, a, a dishonesty about the energy transition. And they have people thinking that you can replace all of this oil and energy generation in, a, in the next 10 years. And that is a gross misrepresentation of what the energy transition will actually be, because it's going to be decades upon decades. Yet everyone thinks you could just go to wind and solar tomorrow and everything would be fine. And is right. that a sentiment that is carried in California as well? It, it, it you know, yes, it's it, it's a they they totally ignore that in the energy transition, and and I find a lot of it is they the push is to skip ahead to technologies like you know batteries, you know, for for large scale, uh, you know, utility systems that that don't exist yet, and when you as, the more you peel back the onion on that, it's a question of you know our our solid state batteries a good solution for the grid. Um, but then, yeah, you know, even with the vehicle mandates in California in 2035, Newsom signed an executive order to ban the internal combustion engine and sales on vehicles all the way down to leaf blowers. And despite this, the EIA is still telling us California is going to demand a million, uh, a million barrels a day in 2040, even with all of these issues factored in. So, I think you're exactly right. You know, the idea of a transitioning happening in 20 years is is really, you know, idealistic 
and more of a dream state than what we will have, which is all of the above, and we need everything. So myself being a, a Texan, um, I just checked our, our price of gas here in Austin, and it's about $2.90 uh, right now. And I know that we, we have a lot of Californians moving here every day. Um, I guess an obvious question for me, and, and, and not to be disrespectful, but out of, out of all the places that an operator could choose to produce oil and gas, um, given the, the regulatory and the political burdens going on in California, what is the case for actually producing in California? Something must be good for you to want to be there producing, but it seems yeah. to me that it's a lot of hassle and, and paperwork. So explain that to me. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think number one, the facts about California geology just make it so exciting. I mean, you've, you've got, uh, like for us, a 560-acre lease and 50 to 60 million barrels in place that we can go after. So you've got, you've got really nice reservoir characteristics uh, as a producer. You've got, once you're past the initial hurdles of your UIC permits for steam injection, um, and other permits, and once you're kind of beyond that pilot phase of, of proving your reservoir response, um, you've got really low operating costs. I mean, we're, you're talking, you know, $8 a barrel on your OPEX. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, what I'm excited about as someone that sees myself being in this industry, you know, as long as I can, another 30 years uh, would be awesome. Um, I think you're going to start seeing true transition technologies break through in the oil field. I don't even think we've really scratched the surface, um, but I see potential for reservoirs to be our batteries. And we see that with geothermal, but you also think about the amount of thermal energy you've you've put down hole to produce oil in California. Um, a lot of that remains. And so I think you're going to see the integration of of solar to steam technology. I think you're going to see enhanced oil recovery methods that um, are going to continue to get better. And then I think you're also going to see operators able to reduce their carbon intensity to levels beyond what uh, you know folks might think are achievable. And that that's kind of separate and aside from carbon sequestration, which you know California sets up nicely for from a geologic standpoint, but also from a regulatory framework with cap and trade and low carbon fuel standards. So um, there's regulatory systems in place, but yes, the, the, the navigational challenges and the you know, intestinal fortitude required as an operator uh, is, is, is real. It's strong. So um, <laughs> I, I, get, I hope that answers the question. No, it's great. And, and I like how you said in, in the beginning that you know, you're, you're passionate about this. And I, I think that's a common thread for operators all over is that we have this excitement about it. Right. Um, and, and it's great to see that mm -hmm. there, I, mean, I had no idea that California was like number five or number six, uh, in actual production. So right. I'm, I'm learning things left and right. right. And I'll, I'll throw this one at you. In Kern County alone has over 1.7 billion barrels of proved reserves. So if Kern County was its own state, it'd sit right behind Colorado in proved reserves. So there's a ton of hydrocarbons in, in Kern County. So what have been some of the, the biggest obstacles you've faced from a regulatory perspective getting 
your your assets under development? I think the the biggest challenge and 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 it's it's frustrating is you know we're not we're not high grading assets for where they sit from an environmental perspective. So like for us as an operator, we we went out and specifically looked for assets away from the coast, uh, you know, in known oil fields on the west side where there where there's really, you know, no no potable groundwater. Um, so the frustrating part for us is okay, even when we do try to high grade our asset and focus on an area where, you know, where where is it best to produce oil from an environmental standpoint? Uh, it's often everything seems to be lumped in together. So whether it's setback issues, and of course, Los Ange- the Los Angeles Basin is set on world-class oil reserves. So you have several urban oil fields where setbacks are a real discussion. Uh, but then you've got folks in Kern County that have you know, an environmental impact report, an EIR in place, um, and it seems to be always legally challenged. Um, and, and it's just, it kind of goes into the, the United States legal system that people get frustrated. You can kind of sue over everything. And that, that seems to be what's happening, uh, to the oil and gas industry in California. It's, you know, even when you get the rules of the game in place, which is what government should be doing in a free market is, you know, set the rules, set the table and let us play by those rules. Um, there's always seems to be a legal reason to push pause on everything. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously it's by design, um, by the environmental activist groups to, to just continually try to phase out the production in California by any means possible. Um, so that's, that's the toughest challenge, but, um, on the flip side, you know, you start to feel really good about your development when you when you know how much you've studied it and you've counted all the bugs and bunnies and you've done all the biological surveys and you've done all the cultural surveys and you've, you know, done all the water analysis and you and, and that kind of gives you more fuel to your passion to say, hey, look, I am I am doing everything I can in my power to bring our team together to look at every environmental issue and all we can do is present that to either the water boards or, you know, CalGEM, the, the state regulators and say, Hey, that we lay it out on the table and, um, and here it is. And, and it's just, it's a lot of it is a waiting game. And that's, that's probably the, the hardest part is, is waiting out the, you know, the response. Well, so California has been a little bit ahead of the rest of the country in terms of some of these regulations being in place. Do you see that as a trend extending out to the rest of the country or is this a California specific attitude? I see it extending personally. I see, you know, I see some of the, the seismicity issues we're hearing about in the Permian and, and I'm not, I'm not by any means a technical expert on what's going on there, but the amount of water that's going to be produced in the Permian and, and had to have to be disposed of. And um, I, I think you're going to start seeing, a lot of you know you you already are seeing satellites you know being put put in in space just to kind of watch <clears throat> whether it's you know tracking methane emissions but pretty soon you get enough cameras up there you're seeing that you know the impact on surface and a lot of shale plays and and it can be significant um and and so i think you're going to see that kind of a trend continue in terms of you know we're all under a very watchful eye um but what I would hope, what I'm, I'm hopeful for, is that we see 
um, concessions from regulators. I don't know if that's the right word, but maybe it's recognition of the opportunities to leverage the good things about our industry. So for example, let's take water in California. You know, our lease, we're looking at a a total dissolved solids around, you know, 10,000 to 15,000 parts per million. So like, you know, one-tenth the salinity of something you're going to see in a, in a shale play. Uh, it's actually reusable if you can if you can put the right processes in place. Um, so I hope that operators will start using the data we're gathering in our respective fields to say, hey, this is what we can do really good, and this is how we can help the environment in our local region. Um, so I don't want to get off too far on other areas, but in California, there are a lot of opportunities to, to kind of take, take that watchful regulatory eye and say, okay, we're learning a lot about water that we can reuse as a result of, of what we're, you know, testing and, and, and permitting for our oil fields. So, you know, how can we work with the regulators to use that water in agriculture and benefit other industries in a, in a, you know, in a sustainable way, um, and, and I'm hopeful that those kind of conversations start to emerge as these energy crises happen around the globe. And, you know, in California, the, the gasoline crisis will hit us first. And, and I think that's going to be one of the, those turning points to, to turn the conversation to, okay, what can we do, you know, that is good in oil and gas? Because there is so much good that we're not talking about. Yeah. So tying this back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, do you think there's any opportunity in some of these increasing regulations to drive awareness of, again, the cleanliness, relative cleanliness of American production, California production, relative to these imported barrels? And how do we start bringing that more into the conversation with people? Totally. Yeah, you see it. So in California operators, a lot of operators are putting solar on their fields uh, as in part of the low carbon fuel standard uh, system to uh, generate LCFS credits and reduce the carbon intensity of their barrel of crude. Um, that's one component where we can start talking about some of those, you know, water reuse and selling it to agriculture, which is happening and it ha- has happened for many years in Kern County. Um and then, and then I think that the next step that we need to focus on is those those tanker emissions happening in port, and actually advocating for those disadvantaged communities that are sitting next to the ports, and why it is a problem to be importing you know crude oil, um, and and why things um, you know like Ecuadorian crude are are bad uh, for the environment and why California crude is better for the environment. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can have those discussions. Um, but it's, it's very hard to get a platform outside of, you know, organizations like energy strong. How do we, how do we, how do we get energy strong mainstream and, you know, outside of the oil and gas industry? Some of those videos of, of your time out on the boats in the Harbor are just, it's, it's incredible, right? Like, you know, there was one video I was watching and you were kind of pointing in towards the harbor and it's just, it's like wildfire smoke black. I, I couldn't believe right. it. And uh, it's just, it's just crazy. Do you, do you think that, you know, visuals like that, like why don't visuals like that resonate with the public? Because that's not just a social media thing, right? That's national news. Right. People see these, they see these, these ships out there smoking all kinds of carbon for 
uh, one, two months at this point that they're waiting to come right. to, sh- to I don't dock. see that on the news. What news channels are even covering that? Nobody. <laughs> okay, well, Nobody. maybe more blue, Who's in charge blue of the media? states. Blue states like Colorado, I guess. I don't know. Our, our media yeah. here definitely is, I think, covered it to not a very high degree, but, but they've certainly, you know, at least shared the issues and all the ships stacking up and you see the smoke and you see these, you know, they... They want to talk about the oil spill, Mike, you pointed out, until they realized it was a ship that accidentally cut the pipeline that caused the oil spill, right? right. But, like, it's right. like this whole question of, like, how do you take back the narrative in oil and gas? Because, like, you're right. Like, you can share this on uh, – you can share it on social media. But the problem with social media is that you can create your own reality. Like, we all right. kind of live in these bubbles where, like, you can turn off the people that – annoy you and post dumb shit and you can keep the mm-hmm. people in your news feed that post the stuff that you like, you know? And so it's like, right. how else do you get the message out there? Like, how do you really take back the narrative? Right. Right. And I think, I think what, I think it's sad, but I think what has to continue to happen is these, these crises where when you hit this crossroad of, you know, broad green movement versus reality. And, you know, you've got the gas crisis in, in Europe happening right now in the middle of winter. But this, this supply chain crisis is a perfect analog to what's happening globally with the, with the green uh, New Deal movement. And, and we have this fanciful idea that we can have all the comforts of modern life and none of the environmental side effects and it's just not reality and it's it's it doesn't i don't think any any political party wins by saying we need to buy less stuff as americans we need to just consume less that's like reduce reuse recycle like reduces the first thing and nobody wants to go out there and tell people well stop shopping and stop doing this instead what the political leaders, what Gavin Newsom has done, and Pete Buttigieg was just out last week kind of doing this fake victory tour on the supply chain crisis. Um, Their solutions are, we're going to expand the offloading capacity at the port. We're going to expand the rail into the port. We're going to expand, you know, the storage areas for shipping containers, which there is nowhere else to put them. And we're going to electrify the port. Well, none of that is a now type of a solution. And as a result, we see last week there were, I think, 106 ships waiting, which is a record. So the problem's getting worse. And what they've done to hide it is, and you would never know this if you're not familiar with the California coastline, but when I went out there, it was October. My buddy took me out from Newport Harbor on his boat. We it we went 20 miles, 15 miles south or north, excuse me, towards the Long Beach port from Newport. And you slowly see the progression. And back in October, the vast majority of the boats were sitting near shore. So it was unbelievable. It was a life-changing experience, quite frankly, to be in, you know, we got as close as probably three to five miles still outside of the main waiting area, like right next to the port. So we didn't even make it to like the inner, inner bubble. But now what they've done is they've spread the ships out over the whole coastline down into Mexico. So they're waiting everywhere now, which you'll notice, you know, driving up North County, San Diego, you see boats, which that never has happened in the past. Driving through San Juan Capistrano in Newport Beach, you see boats idling. Going up to the port, you see boats. So the boats are just literally everywhere. 
And it's trying to drive that visual away from people living in these coastal communities and try it's dispersing some of that, you know, that particulate matter that we saw. We were very fortunate to not, enough to be there on a very still weather day. The sea was calm. There was no wind. And it was just like everything was sitting in the basin and you could just see the diesel and smell the diesel around you. And now they've just spread it out down into Mexico. And so everybody gets that air quality and, you know, nothing's changed. Literally nothing has changed. Yeah. I hope that people start to see through the bullshit. And I know Kat probably has some opinions on this because what I see, and this, this might be an ignorant statement, but I think the data backs it up. I see people leaving California at a record rate because the cost of living is insane. Buying a home is almost impossible if you're in the middle class. Gas is five bucks a gallon. It's not, it's a high tax burden state. It's not great for doing business, but yet they leave and they go to a state like Texas and then they turn Mm -hmm. around and they support the same policies they're running from in Texas. Man, it's like, you know, they, they turn around, they're fleeing, fleeing the state and the policies and, and yet they bring it, you know, I mean, my brother lives in Bozeman, Montana, which Mm -hmm. is a destination for a lot of people who are fleeing West Coast locations, not right. just California, right? Seattle and Oregon right. too. And they are bringing these, this mentality and these policies and these politics. And it's just like, you're coming, you, you're coming here because that doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. leave your politics at the border. And I, I hope that someday people really do start to wake up to that reality of like, you're leaving for a reason and it's the politics and all the shit that you're leaving behind, so don't bring it with you. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think one of the biggest issues in politics is there's no middle ground anymore. And I think most people in, in our age bracket, let's build a big bracket, 20 to 45, I think most people are actually moderate. I think most people are probably down the middle, but the political parties have just created this choice. You're either extreme left or extreme right when you read these bills and these pieces of legislation. And it's not a reflection of, I think, the general sentiment, but we're picking candidates based on, you know, social media presence now. So, so Mike, so, so to kind of, to kind of wrap it up here, thinking about, um, Energy Strong as a platform for you, looking into the future, what would be kind of the main one or two messages that you would like to get across or that you would like to see accomplished in California so that we can help you get that out there? I think number one, we need to be no different than the food industry, which is buy local. Every Everything when we talk about health of our bodies, it's buy local and buy sustainable. And so I think how do we as an oil in oil and gas industry or just an energy industry, uh, you know, group share that with people that the, the best thing for you is to buy something that's local. And the best thing for, you know, our policies is to be sustainable and not and, and sustainability is never about cutting something out completely, such as oil and gas or ice cream. Everybody wants to have a little bit of ice cream in moderation. So everybody needs to realize we're going to have a little bit of oil and gas forever. And, and, and it's not a bad thing. And, and we're not out, you know, killing people's pets and, and, and doing all these weird negative things that, you know, the activists want to paint us as, as being. Because, 
you know, quite frankly, I guess the, the third thing I would share is, is most oil and gas people are environmentalists and they are conservationists. So how can we kind of marry ourselves to buying local, buying sustainably and, you know, supporting the nature that we, you know, live in at a local level? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, th- I think that's a lot of what we like to talk about here on the podcast and with Energy Strong recently as well is is all of those same ideas that you just touched on. So uh, I think we, we just want to continue to bring that message forward and and get to as many people as possible this idea that you do it, like you said, with, with food, buy local. You do this with everything else in your life, understanding that the things that you get locally are, are some of the best and support the local economy. Why don't we do that with our energy too? Exactly. And I think, I think it's going to, I think what you guys are doing is so awesome because you're building this brand awareness in our industry. And I think it's going to hit a point. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, but I'm a little pessimistic about like the policy movements are going to hit this, continue to hit this brick wall as we see that we can't cut oil and gas out completely. But I think then we're going to have a situation where we can look back and say, hey, that energy strong group was was right all along. <laughs> so I, I, I love what you all are doing. And I, I think it's really great for the industry. We appreciate what you're doing. I mean, those are words to live by. And uh, your content's great. You're you're so vocal. Uh, you do such a good job advocating for the industry. And uh, I, I'm sure that you got to have those days where you kind of feel like the world's against you. But uh, man, you put out great stuff and just appreciate your perspective uh, out there in the Twitter and LinkedIn worlds. And uh, thanks for coming on and, and sharing a little bit more with us, man. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for our industry. I, I think there's so many good people doing so many good things. So I really appreciate you know having me on and, and being able to share, uh, share a little bit of the craziness out West. Yeah, the people the people are what make this industry, I think, so good. So I agree with you, man. Well, Mike, we appreciate the time. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Well, that's it for the Energy Strong podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something listening to Mike. I know I sure did. I didn't really know anything about California oil and gas before today. So really interesting to hear a different perspective in this industry. I'd like to remind you once again to please leave a rating or a review wherever you listen. It really helps us out. We were partnered up with the Porter Billups Leadership Academy as a nonprofit partner right now, and any sponsorship funds that we get for this podcast are going straight to them. So if you have any interest in sponsoring this podcast, know that your funds will go straight to a great nonprofit here in Denver supporting at-risk youth. If you want to learn how to sponsor the podcast, please get in touch with us, Energy Strong, on LinkedIn, and we'd be happy to get you set up, get you represented on the podcast, and get you credit for for making an impact in the community. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn, and we look forward to seeing you again next time.